You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning let it pour Tonight we're in the groove together Ain't gonna worry about Stormy weather Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on the drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the door. Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. And we've got a very special guest today. All our guests are special, but some are more special than others, as they say. Some are more equal than others. Our producer, Kelly Whitworth, has put her hand in the barrel. Yes, we keep them in the barrel. This is Snowtown Mark II. And she's pulled out Laurie Levy. How are you, Laurie? Pretty good, thank you, Joseph. That's great. Now, I, I warned you about this. Who's the singer? Oh, wouldn't be Kate Sobrano, would it? No, no, she's too young. I told you she's too she's young. your vintage. Okay. I said she's your vintage, mate. Uh, Think when you're a young whippersnapper. Evie Hayes, Tony Lamont. <laughs> Margaret Roadnight. No, I, look, I would never have guessed that. Really? Yeah, no. Ah, that's interesting. Look, Laurie, we're just going to have a little chat. Only last 56 minutes, you can relax. Yeah. Think of yourself as in a canoe, which I'm sure you're used to, And uh, but I've got the paddle this time. <laughs> okay. So, Laurie, we're going to start at the beginning. What year were you born? Uh, 1941, Joseph, and uh, in Melbourne. My God, you're an octogenarian. <laughs> yes. I interviewed somebody on the program about a year ago. He was 97, and he was as sharp as, you know, tack. You're just as sharp, obviously. Yeah. So you got much recollection of your early years on the planet? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I, I had a pretty normal upbringing. Uh, I, uh, I, I guess the thing I'm really happy about is that when I first started work, uh, I, I started working at Channel 9 uh, mm. in 1957. And, uh, you know, I started in the in the mailroom and uh, worked my way through the system until I became a cameraman. And, uh, you know, I loved the work and uh, I learned a lot about injustices in those days. And, uh, and I guess that probably influenced my life a great deal. I want to go a bit earlier than that. We'll come to that later on. But um, 
obviously you were a war baby. Um, uh, you want to say anything about your parents? Yeah, well, my parents had come out to Australia from England when they were kids. They met here, and uh, uh, my father was in optics. He uh, he had signed up to go to the Second World War, but because of his job, he was uh, told to stay in Australia. Hmm. Did you have any brothers and sisters? No, no, no right. brothers and sisters. So a sing. So you got any recollections of those very early war years? Uh, yes, I, I can remember the the uh, uh, where we lived being blacked out every night to uh, just so no lights uh, could were allowed to to be on and visible from the outside, of course. And uh, but but yeah, it was just a pretty normal normal upbringing. I went to a state school. I went to Brighton Tech. I went to Melbourne High. Um, Hang on, hang on. That, that's not that's not normal. What you've gone to Mel from Brighton Tech to Melbourne High, but we'll, we'll go back to the. What primary school did you go to? Uh, Brighton Road State School. Yeah, and you got any recollections about that? Yeah, it was a pretty tough school. Uh, <laughs> uh, what do you mean by tough? Uh, I, I, I guess it. it the, the, yeah, you, you, you had to. Uh, uh, there were. Quite a few bullies around, and uh, you had to learn to cope with them or, mm. or, or fight them. Usually, it was a case of uh, coping with them. But, but uh, uh, I, I really, uh, I don't think I really found uh, what I really wanted to do in life until I started working um, in, in in television, and that. That really gave me a, a great focus and a, a, a great direction, Joseph, to yeah. go in. Yeah, but you were 26 when you started working television. Um, no, I, I would have been about 16. 16. Maths was, yeah. was never my strong point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what happened that you went to Brighton Tech which you'd expect that, you know, during that time in the 50s, and then you found yourself at Melbourne High. Yeah, yes, I, I, uh, I, well, I didn't really, I, I don't think I was ever a particularly good, good student. I was always a very introverted kid, and uh, I, I probably uh, didn't really enjoy school a great deal. Right, right. So why a transition from tech to high school? Well, I went for uh, a central school, mm. and and I thought I'd try try a tech school, and and, and but I, then I went back to to uh, uh, the other system and and went to Melbourne High for a year, and then I managed to get a, a job. Uh, at Channel 9. And, All right. Let's go back to that. Let's go back. 16-year-old lad. Uh, television what started in 56, did it, here in Melbourne? I think. Yes, it did. Yeah. So it's only been going for a year. What made you knock on the door? Uh, well, it just happened uh, an old schoolmate uh, had the job of 
delivering mail there, mm-hmm. and he was he had a promotion and there was a job going, and I went for the interview and uh, got the job and uh, stayed in the office for for a month. Then went down to staging and then went on to cameras. Um, mm. I just want to so, go back. I want to go back to the original interview. Can you remember yep. much about it? Oh, look, look... Uh, You're only 16, it's your first job. Yeah, I can remember that the the, the, uh, uh, the name of the manager who interviewed interviewed me was uh, Mr. Baelish. Right. And, and uh, he was a really nice guy. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I just found that, that working in a creative industry was just... Fantastic! It was it was what I'd been missing at school. Right. So, so, what... so I, I I really I really feel I can honestly say this, Joseph, but I feel my education really started uh, when I started working uh, at at the Nine Network. And what were the people like? You said you drifted into cameras. Did you just hang around, and or did you just specifically applied to? Going into the camera? No, yeah, whatever job you did, there was a promotion, well, a, a move on promotion at the end of it. And, right. Uh, and I always aim to uh, to get onto cameras because even when I was a kid, I used to do a lot of photography. Uh, I can remember going uh, down to motor races and, and photographing cars and uh, drivers that were coming out from overseas and um, so I, I always loved photography, and, and I could, couldn't have thought of a better place to start work. Mm. Have you got any of those? Still got any of those old photographs? Those old black no, and white? No, 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 I haven't. No, I haven't. No, no. That's unfortunate. You could have done a retrospective, considering <laughs> what you've done in your life. Yeah, that's extraordinary. So, cameras. How old were you when you started with the cameras? I, I would have been uh, probably. 18. 18. And what did that entail? Well, I, I guess you go through the normal training. Uh, uh, you start on fairly small programs and work your way up to to bigger programs. Um, uh, I worked on the Kennedy program, Don Lane, uh, Bert Newton, uh, uh, those shows. Uh, we also did a lot of the current affair work, which uh, uh, was really interesting stuff. Uh, so, did you work in inside and outside the studio with the, with the current affairs? Did you go out out into the real world? Uh, yes, we, we, that's when we were using handheld video cameras. Mm. Uh, but m- most of my work had been studio work uh, over the years. Mm. And what was it like working with these uh, house, household names in those days? The people, like, like you said, Bert Newton, Don Lane, I mean, they were household names. I remember yeah. the whole of Melbourne would sit down and watch the Don Lane show and uh, the Graham Kennedy show. Yeah, they were, they were terrific guys to work with. I mean, the, 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 the crews at, at, at Nine were, were, were great, you, you know, you, Everybody worked together, and, and the thing I always remember about the Nine Channel Nine was the work ethic was so good. 
uh, everybody worked. Uh, people didn't work for money necessarily in those days. You got paid, of course, but people worked because they believed in what they were doing. And and uh, that work ethic that, that I learnt uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, I still use today on the campaigns that I run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that work ethic was... I think one of the things that in, in those days put Channel 9 as, as the lead, um, the highest rating uh, television channel. Mm. When you started doing current affairs and uh, you went out uh, with a handheld camera, how difficult was that? Um, well, well, I guess when you get, went out on a job, you were looking to do the best photography you can you could do uh, to uh, to cover the job you were doing and uh, and I mean uh, one of my heroes in the 60s of course was Martin Luther King and I love you know the work that he did on civil rights in America and uh, 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 I was sort of very very inspired by that I was also in the 1970s inspired by uh, what Greenpeace were doing uh, to stop whaling on the high seas, and um, so, so, and also in the seventies, I was inspired by the two Washington Post journalists, uh, Bernstein and Woodward, when mm. when they mm. started investigating in, in Watergate and wound up bringing down a president of the United States, so, Richard Nixon. Okay, so during that period, the late 60s and early 70s, obviously things were on the move in this country as far as young people were concerned. So outside of the studio work, what type of contacts did you have? Uh, um, well, basically, uh, look, look, the, the thing, that, the, watching change happen in, inside w- was the way... Uh, politicians were seen. I remember in the early days we would make videotapes uh, of Prime Minister Robert Menzies and when the Prime Minister arrived at the studio everybody had to wear a suit, the red carpet was rolled out and when you were taping a a segment uh, nobody could talk you obviously didn't talk to the Prime Minister. Yeah. But a few years later, um, when when Gough Whitlam was running for the Prime Minister, that had all changed. Gough had just turned up at the studio, uh, come down, do a current affair, uh, talk to Mike Willisie, or, and, and um, you know, Gough would walk in and say, G'day, guys, and all talk to the crew and have a chat to him. And mm-hmm. and, and that, that's where things started changing. And I think what really changed it was probably the ABC's to the uh, um, uh, current affair programs in the early 60s mm-hmm. where, you know, if a politician refused to turn up to talk uh, on a subject, um, they would just show an empty chair. And I think that was the start of that revolution. Right. So how long did you last at Channel 9? Well, I I worked at Channel 9 and I freelanced 
and then I went back to Channel... I left Channel 9 probably in about 1965, and then I went back uh, full-time in 1972 and worked there until 1980. Uh, they were quite tumultuous years between 72 and 80. Uh, well, there was a lot of change there, Joe. Yeah, so I remember yeah. working... In, in the early days, of course, television was restrained to to being a state television channel because you couldn't broadcast interstate to any other uh, state around the country. So uh, it, it was in the... It would have been in the 60s that the coaxial cable was finally laid between... Um, between Victoria and New South Wales and suddenly uh, uh, they could do joint programs from Sydney and Melbourne. Then, of course, coaxial cable was laid everywhere and um, by by the 80s, uh, we still had black and white, or by the late 70s, or middle 70s, I think it was, we had black and white television then colour came in, I think, in about 1970, late 74, early 75. And then, of course, I, I went across to... I was part of the Australian television team that went to Montreal in 1976. And, uh, and of course, in those days, you had to package a program in Canada uh, at the Olympics to send back to and back to Australia and and, uh, and then you had satellite television uh, uh, not long after that where where of course now you just beam around the world uh, live to air and, and mm. the changes over the years have been quite in technology have been phenomenal well you mentioned the M word the Montreal Olympics the ones we don't mention you didn't really have much to package back did you well I remember getting into a <laughs> bit of trouble there I think it was Raylene Boyle that we, we didn't win a gold medal and that's right yeah and, and Raylene Boyle was the biggest hope we had and she in in in, in the lead-up races, she broke three times and uh, was disqualified. And I can remember chasing around an American television, which, which covered the main uh, the main stadium and, and most of the races. Really, didn't have any footage of it. Right. And uh, I, I can remember uh, trying to track down any photographs of uh, of of railing yes. breaking in that last race and managed to to get a couple of photographs from a, one of the Sydney newspaper photographers who was over there and we put those in the package to get back to, to yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. Look, look, I'm going to ask you this question. I don't, you don't have to answer it. But how much front does a cameraman need? I mean, we, it must be a pretty... Difficult experience in some on some occasions. Oh yes, yes, um, it, it it can be. I, I well, I, I I guess you learn to live with with what's happening at the moment. Um, mm. But but also I I had worked with one of the Channel Nine journalists who 
went across to Balibo. Uh, and, and, of course, he went over with uh, uh, the Channel 7 crew and there were five journalists and they went over, they were sent over to cover the war with Indonesia land and landing in, in Timor and they didn't come back. That's right. Yes, extraordinary, extraordinary times, those periods. So what made you get out of television? Um, well, um, I had open-heart surgery in 1979. In 1979? What type of yeah. lifestyle were you living? Uh, well, um... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were pretty young in 79 to have open-heart surgery. Yeah, yeah, I was about 30... About 37 or 30. Yeah, that's extraordinary. One that you had it and two that you survived. But I mean, I've been a doctor for almost 45 years and uh, I graduated in 75 and open heart surgery, you know, stem to stern, (laughs) we used to call it. Yeah. It wasn't easy. So you didn't have one of these dissolute um, television lifestyles, you know, alcohol, drugs, you know, uh, food, greasy foods. No, I've never taken drugs, and basically yeah. I have a red wine occasionally, but, but I've yeah. never drunk alcohol either. So um, bad genes. Yeah, and, yeah, and and, and I, I can remember going down to the alcohol. I remember having pains in my chest one night. Yeah. I've been out riding my bike training. I did a lot of bike bike riding in those days, mm. training to keep fit, and... and uh, I had the locum, and uh, he checked checked it out, checked all the pains out, and he said, oh, it's only muscular. Um, but I knew it wasn't, and I started to walk down to the Alfred Hospital about 8 o'clock at night right. and uh, and just about collapsed on the way and wound up getting a taxi down there. And, um, of course, I had an angiogram and, and whatnot, and they decided to operate fairly quickly, and... I had one artery done mm. at that time, and I decided then I went back to Channel Nine, which was all good. Uh, but I was still working well because there was when you're having or just after the operation, you're not quite sure whether you're going to be as good as what you were. Um, so, so uh, I was, I was fine, and uh, I mean, it's amazing what they can do in hospitals and. I um, decided to leave in, in 1981 just to work on issues that I believed in. Right. So that, that, that's a big, big call at the age of 40 after, after my, uh, heart surgery. Well, did you feel that life was limited or what made Because you could have stayed at Channel 9 and kind of, you know, drifted along for, for decades. Well, well I, I, I guess... Uh, um, the thing I always loved about camera work was you're living on adrenaline all the time, mm-hmm. and, and I, in, in those days, having a graph, you know, they said only lasted a graph may only last five years or so. So I thought, well, I might only have five years to live, so I'll get out there and mm-hmm. and work on what I believed in. And and uh, uh, I'd been working with Project Jonah in the seventies also to have whales protected in Australian waters and 
there were some really great campaigners in Project Jonah. Uh, Greenpeace did the, the bulk of the work worldwide and we, we were fighting here to have Australia uh, ban whaling and uh, there was a uh, an inquiry set up in 1977 to look at whaling and um, and that inquiry found that whales should be fully protected and uh, and, and they were in 1980. Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister at the time. Uh, and I, I guess I had the bug for working on issues and I just kept going. Right. Just getting back to the surgery in these days of stents where you go in and come out the same day, um, you'd have one of those zipper scars, would you? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Explain to people what it's... What you have to go through, what's a, what's a zipper scar? Well, when you have, in, in those days, when, when, you, when you have open heart surgery, uh, they cut through the breastbone yep. to open you up, to take the heart out and work on it. And, of course, uh, it could take two, three, four hours. And, and when they sew you up again, you've got... Uh, the hardest thing is probably the pain from uh, the breastbone being sawed in half. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, I only had one artery done, which was the left LAD at that stage. And um, uh, they also take veins from your leg and from your arm hmm. to uh, to bypass the blocked artery. And uh, and I was fine after that. I, uh, I was out of hospital in six days, and uh, I was really good. And uh, but I then had open heart surgery again in two thousand and one, uh, where I had four arteries done. And in two thousand and nineteen, I needed a stent. Wow. Uh, the main artery to the heart was pretty well blocked. I had an angiogram. And uh, it was so blocked, they just put the the stent in straight away. Mm, so, but all that all that work was done at the Alfred, and uh, I could have gone to a private hospital, but I stayed with the Alfred because I thought they were marvellous. The doctors are always yeah. and nurses and had done a fantastic job. Uh, considering the, uh, the the state of the building even today. I mean, it's it's a it's a first class hospital. You wouldn't get any better anywhere in the world, you know, especially yeah. for trauma yeah. and heart surgery. So, yeah. what, what did you think of the difference between just having a stent put in and uh, having open heart surgery? I mean, well, it, well, it's so much easier having a stent put in. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have a choice in in the the first two operations, yeah. but with, with with the third third time, it was just so easy having a stent put in. Uh, they put the stent in about three o'clock in the afternoon. I stayed in overnight and left the hospital at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah, it's like it's like the coaxial cable story, isn't it? Medicine. It's everywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's been the same thing with technology. Yeah, it's uh, but look, I, I, I'm really thankful to to all the work that um, the surgeons did and, and all the staff at the Alpha because I'm really only alive. Uh, because of medical science, really. Yeah. Without medical science, yeah. I wouldn't be around today. And I wouldn't have done a lot of the campaigning that I've been able to do. Yeah, it's like, yeah. 
I think people forget. Yeah, I think people forget uh, the importance of a universal health scheme that was introduced by the Whitlam government in 1973. Yep. How lucky lucky we are in Australia that um, if you've got a major health issue, that you can actually get it treated for nothing and get some of the world's best people to do it. And and you're a living example of that, obviously. You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now let's yeah. move on to, to the more, your more activist lifestyle. Why Wales? Um, well, I, I, I guess uh, they were in serious trouble at the time. And I know... Uh, uh, Australia, I think, was about the fourth largest whaling nation in the world, and and whale numbers, like waterbird numbers today, uh, were crashing. And not not only did we fight for them, I mean, as I said, Malcolm Fraser banned whaling in Australian waters in 1980, but then we went down in 1981 to Tasmania to see if we could help rescue stranded whales. And, and within four years, we were able to uh, set up state and federal whale rescue programs. So in, in those days, Joseph, when whales beached, they were either left on the, on the beach to die or sometimes they were shot mm. to try and ease their suffering. Nobody ever really tried to rescue them and and we went down in 1981 to Strawn in, in Tasmania to, to, to try and rescue the big 40-ton sperm whales. And we, we only, I don't, we didn't rescue any, but we certainly had a good try in doing so, in towing whales out to sea. Uh, uh, and we learnt a lot. And I've always found working with, with wildlife, you learn a lot just by observing what they're doing, how they work together, how they help each other. And after that first whale stranding, we were very successful with the smaller whales like pilot whales and false killer whales. And the the most wonderful thing about that experience uh, as well, Joseph, was the fact that... um, I mean, the only reason we were able to really set up whale rescue programs within a short period of time, that four or five-year period, Mm. was simply that, of course, the media, again, it's always the media on the front line covering the story that hundreds of volunteers would turn up to help rescue the whales. And, And we learnt as we went. You know, you keep the whales wet when they're on the beach because they overheat. They don't have pores in their skins like we do. And just by getting them in and finding that the whales at first couldn't swim because they had muscle cramp after being on the beach for, you know, a few hours or a day or so. And so you had to massage them. And when you've got say, 50 whales, and each whale needing at least, say, eight people working with with them, um, you need a lot of volunteers. And because of that uh, 
wonderful media coverage on the news. Um, hundreds of people were turning up to help. And in the end, uh, the authorities, like in Tasmania and Victoria, um, got involved. So these days, I mean, we became redundant and Whale Rescue was so successful that these days, as soon as one whale or a hundred whales or two hundred whales beach, uh, state governments go into action and hundreds of volunteers turn up to help. And it's just wonderful. And that spread around the world too. Mm. And I remember, you know, the reward you get for, for, for your work is when you turn on television news, for example, and you see a story coming out of one of the South American countries where they're rescuing stranded whales in exactly the same techniques that we use. And, and that, that is so rewarding. That, that's the, the wonderful part about it. Mm. Different period in, in many ways where we were all on the same page because, as you said, what was on the news kind of affected everybody because everybody looked at the news irrespective of what channel you look at. Yeah, it, yeah. it was the same story. It's a bit different now. Everything's atomised. But in those days, when you went to the water cooler at work, that's what you'd be talking about. You'd be talking about the whale rescue, and that's why... Yeah, and, and the way um, I've always worked, Joseph, is if you've got a species, it uh, doesn't matter what, whether it be whales, kangaroos, water birds, or um, what you've got to do is take them into the hearts and minds of the public. And, and the best way to do that is through the media. The media is your most powerful weapon in, in bringing about social change. And... And, and, and so all of our campaigns have been media-based. Mm. So, so what other campaigns have you been involved in? Um, well, after Wales, we, we um, had a couple of farmers jailed for cruelty to kangaroos. Um, uh, and we... we fought a few battles for kangaroos and we also started I started the duck campaign in 1986 when there were 100,000 duck shooters in Victoria and 15 rescuers went out to challenge 100,000 duck shooters and uh, and of course all the media came out uh, with us and, and, and I mean people would often say well how can 15 people ever be effective against 100,000 well it was only because the media was there that, that that with those stories going not only right throughout Victoria on the nightly news, television news, radio news, talkback radio, newspapers, um, and, and going interstate, people in other states said, wow, uh, let's get involved. Because the campaign was about two images, Joseph. It was about an image of a guy dressed up in camo gear, carrying a, carrying a semi-automatic or pump-action shotgun, as they did in those days, shooting down a beautiful native water bird. Mm. Uh, up until that time, not many people thought about the value of those birds. But what changed it was having rescuers out there uh, bringing out a wounded bird. So you had those two images, the one of the bird being shot out of the sky and you had the second image of a rescuer coming out of the water with a wounded bird. Mm. And we also took along 
a mobile veterinary clinic. So the wounded birds could be treated in a mass-type situation uh, on the spot. And, and, of course, the media could go into the mobile veterinary clinic and, and see the work that the vets were doing trying to save the lives of, of those birds. Birds that had smashed wings, uh, they had broken bills, they were shot in the body. Um, I, I mean, those birds, resist. the violence and the cruelty that's inflicted on those birds is horrific. And, and th- this was the first time the victims were being treated by vets in, in a makeshift hospital and, and, and public opinion sort of changed overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, uh, we don't have 100,000 duck shooters in Victoria. We have about eight or 10,000 active. Uh, we're close to getting it banned. But the first state that banned it was Western Australia in 1990 when Carmen Lawrence was Premier. The second state was New South Wales when Bob Carr became Premier. The third state was Queensland. Uh, when Peter Beaton was Premier, three Labor states. So we can really only win it with state Labor governments. It's a state issue, but of course we can't win it if, if a Liberal National Party coalition is in state politics. Mm. I just want to get back to the, that first time the 15 of you went out there. Now, obviously, if you're confronting people that have got guns, that you know, it's, there's always the danger that something will happen that's unexpected. Um, how did you deal with that that first time? It was frightening. It, it really was. We'd, we'd never experienced anything like it because the wetland that we actually went to was Reedy Lake down at Geelong, and, the, and there were three lakes there, and there were probably about eight thousand shooters on, on those lakes and uh, it was a frightening experience I no doubt about it mm. but but uh, and I, I I guess what we were able to do was to bring out wounded birds and we were able to bring out illegally shot protected species and threatened species and 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 of course if we had have done that and the media hadn't been there, the campaign wouldn't have gone anywhere. Mm. And, and again, it, it's to the credit of the media being there that, that the campaign took off overnight. And, and it wasn't going to be a long-running campaign in those days. It, it was purely a case of, of going out there once to highlight the problems. And, and, but we got so much media coverage, the campaign just took off and I knew we could do a lot more for water birds, so we stuck with it. And, 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 and yes, things have changed. And, and we're close in Victoria now to getting it banned. And, so so, uh, so did, did the campaign start off in Victoria with water bird, water fowl? Yes. yes. So, so why, do, why do you think these other states have banned it and Victoria is still hanging on? Is it because the hunting lobby is pretty powerful in this state? or? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Uh, we, we, we had, we, Victoria has more wetlands. We had about 20,000 wetlands where other states, uh, and we had 100,000 duck shooters, and the other states, Queen, uh, Queensland only ever had about 1,000 duck shooters, New South Wales had 12,500, and Western Australia had 2,000. 
and Tasmania had about 2,000. So Victoria had more duck shooters than all the rest of the states put together, mainly because we had more wetlands here and, and because the gun lobby was a lot stronger in Victoria. Mm. So you made me... Um, long-standing friends with the gun lobby here in Victoria? <laughs> well, I don't think we've ever been on good terms. Yeah, you haven't been invited to, you know, the night when they give out the trophies or something? No, no we haven't. Guest speaker, nothing like that? No, nothing like that. Right. <laughs> we've, we've seen them in court quite a few times, have though. We? We've debated with them in court and yeah. in the media, of course. Yeah. But... When we went over to, in, in 1990, the West Australian Conservation Council picked up on the issue and they were going to run a rescue campaign and they phoned me up and said, can you come over here for about 10 days to just to give us some advice? And we, we fought it out on Lake Warnemal over there and within three months, Carmen Lawrence had a media release out saying that each year wounded birds are left to die. Protected species are, are illegally shot, and in those days, lead shot polluted the wetlands and the duck shooting was going to be banned in, in Western Australia. Yeah. Bob Carr did the same thing in 1995 and then Peter Beatty in, in, in Queensland in 2005. So we always had more duck shooters, uh, their numbers are way down now. We've at least uh, taken out about 90,000 of those duck shooters. And, you, and of course, it's much harder those that, to keep the media coverage going because uh, it's so quiet these days. There are so few shooters out on the wetlands that it's much harder to get media coverage because, obviously, the issue isn't as exciting as what it was in those days. Mm. So, so if people are interested in those campaigns, is there any uh, sites they can go to? If they're yes, because they, they're they, still they, functioning. Yeah, they they can go to our our website, which is info at duck dot org dot dot au. No, no, sorry, that's my email address. Uh, au. so that's www.duck.org.au um, and, and they can join up if they want to. Mm. So how much how much of your time, now that you're 80, is devoted to this this particular issue regarding uh, wild, wild fowl? I became a, more than a full-time job right from the start. It was... Mm. 15-hour days, 20 days, or, you know, 20-hour days, seven days a week. It, it, um, the, the amount of work that had to be done was, was enormous, but it, it, it's very satisfying when you see change happening. And, and, and again, you, you know, it's, it's the media that's bringing about the change uh, because it's taking those images... The, the violent images, the, the cruelty images, uh, straight to the hearts of the public, and uh, and of course, uh, I always believe that that um, the public will react to uh, acts of kindness over shocking acts of violence, and, mm. and and that's what the campaigns have been about. 
Has this had a, a toll, all this uh, work ethic involved, has that had a toll on your personal life? Uh, yeah, yes. Um, uh, I was supposed to get married in, in in early 1980s, but when I uh, was in hospital, and, uh, I decided to just go out and fight issues. Um, mm-hmm. We parted company, and she was beautiful. Um, I often regret that a great deal. But um, look, looking back on it, we've achieved a lot for wildlife. And, and quite frankly, it's hard to understand why governments aren't doing more to look after Australia's magnificent wildlife, which we have in this country. And, and you've got to fight to, to change the attitude of politicians. Mm, you got any ideas why there's this resistance? You know, there's, there's, as you said, kangaroos, koalas, echidnas, it just goes on and on and on. Yep, it goes on and on, and and like even with the bushfires in two thousand and nineteen, uh, you, you know, it, it's scientists uh, established that about three billion native animals, birds, and and reptiles perished in in those bushfires. Yet we still had a duck shooting season that year. Mm. So yet there's no, and that's why it's been hard to walk away from it. it is because when you have 3 billion native animals die in bushfires and and they, a duck shooting season is called a few months later. And so politicians haven't really learnt anything by it. We've had periods during drought when duck season's been cancelled. Is that correct? I just got vague, vague. Yes, yes. The, the first time was in 1995 under the Kennett government. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next one was 2003 under Labor, uh, and then 2007 and 2008 during the long drought, and it looked like Labor was going to just call moratoriums and ban the activity. But unfortunately, Brax retired, and John Brumby took over as Premier. And, and that's when it all changed back again. Um, e- even though it, it, w- with the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires, um, Rumby still called a season, a duck shooting season, uh, about two months later, less than two months later. And, and these, these are the things that keep you going, Joseph. The, the injustice and the... The fact that politicians should be making these decisions, but they don't, you've got to fight all the way, right from the start to the finish. Yeah, and you've got to keep fighting, even when you've won, because things can turn around, yep. and they do. Yes. Well, that's, that's, the, that's why it's so important to, to take native wildlife into the hearts and minds of the public, because once that change happens, um, once that change happens, it doesn't go backwards, and politicians can't turn it around. Uh, and I mean, even on last night's news, and it was on every channel, ABC, 9, 7, 10, uh, uh, a, a dolphin had stranded itself in thick mud down near Williamstown, and, and you know, the uh, 
Melbourne Zoo had their, their vets out to it straight away. The police were there helping it. And, and I mean, and the public were there helping it. And, and it all happens. We don't have to be there anymore. It just happens automatically. And I think that's wonderful. And that, that really is the reward for all the work you put into something over the years. It is seeing that change happen. Right. In the last five or so minutes we've got, have you got any... I know you're 80. I don't want to be rude because I'm a septuagenarian and you're an octogenarian, so I can make a joke about our ages. What are your plans for the future? Well, I just take life day by day. Um, I'm fairly healthy, uh, uh, even though I've had, you know, open-heart surgery twice and a stent put in. But um, I'm still going. I, I try to keep as fit as I can. Uh, uh, do a bit of bike riding. Oh, you're still bike walk. riding? Bike riding. Not as much as what I used to. I think it's too dangerous out there on the roads these days. Oh, it is a bit dangerous, you're right, unless you're on a dedicated so, bike path, yeah. I'm, I'm doing a lot of walking, and um, so I try to walk anything between uh, three kilometres a day and about eight kilometres a day right over the, you know, that waking period. Yeah. Look, our producer's only 40, and she loves bike riding and walking. I yep. think she's crazy. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, walking is really good for you and so is bike riding. Right. Did you go along any natural paths or is it just, just, a, just a normal road or something? Well, I started walking when I came out of hospital really in 2001. I, I took it seriously then and, and, and of course um, in those days I was walking the route I would choose would, would always have a, a tram on it just in case, you, you know, you, <laughs> right. you're petered out near the end of it because you can at least get a, <laughs> a, a tram back. But, but no, I, I lived down near the near Albert Park Lake so I could walk around Albert Park Lake. And, right. Well, you went down there to walk around and watch the Grand Prix, I assume. <laughs> well, I've, never, I've never been to a Grand Prix, but you can hear it. Yeah, you can hear it. Yeah, I've got a friend uh, lives across the road, and uh, we have, he has a, a yearly barbecue in, on on his um, in his flat overlooking the race. Yeah, yeah. And the noise is unbearable. You're quite right. So, have you got any plans any regard, regarding other wildlife? Or uh, look, you can really only fight one big campaign at a time because mainly because there's so much work to do. Yes, there is a lot of work. Yeah, it is a lot of work. And and uh, so once duck shooting is banned in Victoria, well, there's still South Australia to go and Tasmania and the Northern Territory. Mm. But again, you need people on the ground in those places, obviously. Yeah, yes, yes. That's the key. I mean, you've got yes, when we, when we had moratoriums in, in Victoria, we the rescue team would go down to Tasmania uh, uh, to rescue birds and, and fight the issue down there. Mm. Um, and, but um, uh, So we'll probably do that. Once duck shooting is banned in Victoria, I think we'll probably go across and help out in South Australia next and mm. then down to Tasmania. Have you found the... Um 
World Wide Web and Instagram and Facebook and all these things to be of any use to your campaign? Oh, yes. Look, um, when we first started in 1986, we didn't even have fax machines. So we used to have to deliver media releases at 10 o'clock at night, you know, for the next morning, and hmm. uh, or you'd post uh, media releases out, and then fax machines ca- came in, and, and of course with ki- computers, it's so much easier these days. Uh, and the, the web has made a, a certainly a big difference. We've got a Facebook page which we use as a television station, basically, and, and it's good from that point of view. Yeah, so it's been very useful. Uh, oh yes, very useful. I assume a Prime Minister has uh, put an order of Australia in the mail to you? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. What do you mean you don't think so? It, I mean, I see, all, I see all these retired politicians, you know, get these honours and people have put their life into something that's been productive and useful. <laughs> and What, you haven't been honoured? What's the, going the on? Only... The, the, the only the only things I've received from the state government is a is a jail cell. We've been, arrest, we've been arrested in in Victoria. We've been arrested in Tasmania. We've been arrested in South Australia, and uh, it's it's all been in the lockup over uh, during the day, let out at night, and facing the courts and going back and fighting the issues. But we've fought a lot of court cases over the years. We, we took native water birds to the High Court in 1996. Mm-hmm. We were in the High Court for five days. We had a great legal team um, uh, led by the late Ron Caston, who had won the Marbo case. Uh, and, and we fought in, in the High Court for five days straight. And, uh, and they were doing it pro bono, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... We, we lost our High Court case. But, but, of course, even losing the High Court case, uh, we got enormous amounts of media coverage. So we might have lost the legal side of it, but we won the public relations side of it as well. Well, look, I'm going to make an executive decision, Laurie. We give out some awards called the Eureka Australia Medal, and I'm going to nominate you. We do six every okay. year. So I'm going to nominate you, and as I'm the convener of the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion Celebrations Committee, I'm, I'll push it hard, because I'm just shocked. I am shocked that you haven't been honoured by this country. I mean, I, I, Kelly and I and our listeners are honoured to have spoken to you today. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, can you make me one promise? Yes. Can you invite me to your 100th birthday party? Okay. Because you you said before we went to air, you said you wanted to continue struggling until duck shooting was banned across Australia. So it may take another 20 years. So hopefully uh, Kelly and I will get an invitation, okay? If I live for that long, I'll definitely give you an invitation, Joseph. No worries. And I'll let you know about the Eureka Australia medal sometime in October this year. Thank you very much and all the best to you and all the great people that you've been able to gather around you to be involved in these great struggles. I think yeah, we, we, we couldn't have done it, Joseph, without the thousands of volunteers over the years who have put their lives on the line. We had a rescuer shot in the face in 2011. 
and rescuers didn't stop. They just kept going. And, and without their help, without the help of volunteers, we couldn't have done what we have done. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you to all the people you've been able to mobilise over the years and all the best for the next 20 years. Thanks, Joseph. They dream about the things they did without a peep We're dancing with all the animals of the bush And in the to where that they dance and sing We can tell a story in our dance Cos we watch the birds and the animals do their thing Within the Jira jump A boing, boing, boing That's the kangaroo The nyana complains That's the cockatoo Cooper of squawk That's the sound of the crow Merrigan howl Oh, the cunning old dingo And the cooper barrel after the sun To introduce the brand new day When the birds and animals all wake up They join in and sing the dream time way They join in and sing the dream time way Between the cheer jump A boing, boing, boing That's the kangaroo Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events, and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.